Hi, I'm Polly Morgan. I'm the Director of Photography for A Quiet Place Part 2, and this is The Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Polly Morgan, Director of Photography for A Quiet Place 2. Polly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. I am so excited to talk to you about this film. We have a lot of attention on our Instagram. A ton of you guys asked great questions, and we will be asking most, if not all of them, to Polly today uh, in just a few minutes. But before we get there, um, I want to first quickly mention our sponsor, MZ, Education for Creatives. Learn more at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. M-Z-E-D. And of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, hit subscribe, and you will never miss an episode. Of course, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Polly, this movie is like, this is like the reintroduction of going to the movie theaters post-COVID. It really is. Like, it was my first movie. I'm hearing a ton of people saying it was their first time back to the theater. What do you think it is about this movie at this time that is really drawing people back to theaters? Well, I mean, I think that obviously the first film was such a huge success. So, you know, there's a built-in audience um, for the film. And because, you know, just before COVID hit, you know, I had gone to the premiere the weekend before lockdown and the movie was days away from coming out. And then all of a sudden, you know, COVID came and they pulled the movie. So, I think there was a lot of anticipation about people seeing this film and we were so close and then, um, you know, everything got delayed. So I think it's just really great timing that it's being released on Memorial Day weekend and, uh, you know, the world is opening up and I think people are really excited to get back into the theatre. Do you think it's something about thrillers and horror movies? Because Tenet sort of tried to do this last summer and it didn't really work. And obviously the timing was different and the subject matter is different. But is there something just about like a, th- a fun summer thriller that you're just you're going to the movie for an experience? I feel like A Quiet Place 2 gives you that experience that you really need to lure people back. Do you think there's something to that? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that this is definitely a movie that you need to see in the theater. You know, I mean, the first one was the same. It's just, you know, from the first frame as the movie opens, you know, like the quietness in the theater and the jump scares and the emotion and at times the light humor. Um, I think it's those kinds of experience that when you share them with a group of people, it just amplifies them. Now, I want to talk about that cut, that transition from the first movie to the second, because you did not shoot the first one. We had um, Charlotte Bruce Christensen. I hope I'm saying her name right. She was on Go Creative Show talking about the first movie, and now you're taking over for the second. Did the two of you collaborate at all? Was there a handoff of any sort? No, there wasn't. But, um, you know, Charlotte did such an amazing job um, on the first movie, and I definitely as I was prepping the film, I really wanted to make the handoff between the first and second film seamless. Um, I had a sort of idea that maybe it would play as a double bill in the theaters. So I wanted oh, people to- Oh, that such a good idea. I know. So I wanted to, people to watch them back to back and, you know, not be drawn out of any kind of difference in style. So um, yeah, I just, um, you know, I really referenced her work, especially at the start of the film when, you know, they're at the farmhouse and um, Regan's in the basement. Um, 
so yeah, I just, I thought well, her work was beautiful. And we definitely continued the shooting style of shooting it um, on 35 um, mil film and anamorphic lenses. Yeah, that is a big topic of discussion on our Instagram for sure. A lot of people want to know um, how the decision was made, why, and what that kind of afforded you um, in the production. Well, the decision was made just because, um, you know, we wanted to continue the feeling of the first film and um, we wanted to create this feeling of nostalgia of those those movies that, you know, we sort of grew up watching sort of Spielberg and uh, Ridley Scott movies that, um, you know, just have such a classic look to them. Um, and I think, you know, John really wanted to shoot on film and both of us had to have long conversations with the studio in prep to just sort of impress upon them our passion for shooting it on film and the reasons why we wanted to do it. Um, so it was not an easy conversation to have with them because it definitely added a, a level of complexity to production. We ended up having to fly the um, exposed negative to um, LA from Buffalo and there were oh, no wow. direct flights. So um, often the negative would miss the connection and they would get delayed getting to the bath in LA. Um, and so we were often waiting three or four days before we were able to see dailies. So, oh you know, there's a certain, you know, um, assurance that you get, especially with digital, where you kind of, what you see is what you get. Um, but with film, obviously, there's many things that can happen that you're not aware of. And then having like a three or four day delay um, was definitely nerve wracking at times. Um, but I think all of the complications uh, definitely paid off because, you know, I think it really adds so much to the movie. I'm surprised that there was any pushback at all. I mean, you're going into a sequel to an enormously popular movie and you shot the first one on film. It seems natural, but but people still, even at that level, are a little bit nervous about film. Yeah, they are. I mean, I think it was really just the sort of the delay and how complicated it was going to be for everybody to see dailies. Um, you know, because we only shot the movie in 50 days, which was really tight. And so you're sort of, you're at a location and then you move on. So, you know, if there's issues in the bath or there's a scratch on the negative or something's, you know, um, happens to the, to the film or, you know, maybe there's a focus issue or an exposure issue or something that happens with the camera that you just don't know about until you sort of get that report back. Um, I think that made the studio nervous because, um, you know, there really wasn't much wriggle room to be able to go back and um, pick up much material. So this is probably going to sound like a really stupid question, but I've never worked with film. So uh, you are feel free to snicker at me and tell me I'm an idiot. <laughs> but it, wh is there any kind of a backup plan? Like when you're shooting film, are you also recording digitally? Are you getting like a feed from the monitor? And is there like any sort of security that if there is a major problem, you have some sort of coverage? No, there is no backup. Um, monitoring with film is also very different from monitoring with digital. You're looking at... Um, an analog signal. So um, even though we got the best HD tap that we could, um, you know, we were looking um, at the the sort of image on our iPads through um, QTake, but it's very fuzzy. It's not clean. Um, you also cannot judge exposure. It's not like it is with digital where you're kind of like lighting from the monitor. It's absolutely no reference at all. So, um, you know, you're just lighting with a light meter and you're kind of trying to look at a clear image when you can. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, you know, 
it's uh, also phenomenal experience for a cinematographer because mm. these days with digital, you know, you like you want to be on set, um, and you you know you're either behind the camera or you're you know standing next to the director, but you're also trying to have a calibrated monitor or you're in the DIT tent and you're trying to figure out you know how to do your job on set, but also you know look at the monitor in, in a calibrated environment. So. Um, being on on um, set with a film camera is uh, very freeing because you just have your light meter, and when you know your light meter says what it should, then you're ready to go. I can't imagine just that that nervousness of waiting for the dailies to come back, though. That must, I mean, that just takes so much confidence. And not like you guys on that set aren't you know aren't deserving of a ton of confidence. But at the same time, it's like no matter what your level of filmmaking is you always have that little like, oh my God, is there something wrong? Without seeing it, it's got to make you nervous. For sure. I mean, it did, especially at the beginning, but the more and more we did, you know, I just kind of um, started to trust my eye and uh, relax a little bit into it. We've got a question from Jules Ruiz. I hope I'm saying it right. I apologize if I'm not. Um, Question is, how much do you usually overexpose to get moody in DI? Always low ISO levels. So, I don't 100% know the question. I hope you do. But I think it's just this idea of how are you exposing film in order to have some flexibility in DI? Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, I, I shot with two different film stocks. I shot with 250 Daylight and 500 Tungsten, um, the 5207 and the 5219. And I always rated them to be a little bit slower than they actually were. So, for example, my 500 Tungsten, I would rate at 400 Tungsten. I initially wanted to rate it at three three twenty, but um, I think my gaffer was horrified at that thought because we needed just so much light to to rate the film stock that way. So I always intended to um, have a thicker negative and and expose it a little bit brighter. But there just were times, especially in the furnace or on big night exteriors, where um, you know, even though I was rating it at four hundred, I was probably just rating it at five. And does that give you the kind of flexibility you need? Like, is this is this normal practice or is this something particularly for this movie? I think that most DPs, you know, when they're shooting film, they try and overexpose it a little bit just because, you know, if you underexpose film and you try and dig it out, there's just really nothing there. Um, you know, where film just sings is I overexposed highlights in many situations, you know, really brightly over like, six stops, which I would be so nervous to do in digital. Um, And sometimes I was really unsure whether there would be detail left. But when the dailies came back, you know, I could always see detail in the windows of like the pain and and the texture. So um, yeah, it's just really sort of, you know, making sure that the shadows or wherever you need there to be a bit of detail that, that you're sort of careful about that because it can get a bit noisy. And we did have a question specifically about shadows from Alan Yaman on Instagram. Why didn't you shoot digital for cleaner shadows? Um, I mean, you know, we wanted to shoot film and there's so much that the film gives you. And, um, you know, cleaner shadows, I think, you know, it's a great technical consideration. But, you know, when you're thinking about the emotion and the patina and the texture and the grain structure and everything, um, that film gives you, you know, sometimes I think we can learn all the technical um, components of our work. And sometimes it's good to just throw them away. 
Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And also, you were coming from the previous film, which was shot on film. And I want to talk to you a little bit about how do you now kind of interject your vision and your ideas and your way of thinking about cinematography into something that is a sequel that is not, not only is it a sequel, but it picks up like at that last frame of the previous film. Like it kind of is one continuous story. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I really reference Charlotte's work, especially in those scenarios of, um, the farmhouse basement and, um, you know, how, you know, there was dawn kind of breaking from the first movie. So, I really did like, I looked at the end scene of, of how she shot that, um, the last scene in the basement and uh, just tried to match like the bright, warm light coming through the top windows and, and the cool return from the, the opposite wall. Um, and then obviously we scheduled to shoot the exterior shot of them leaving the house um, at the same time of day. Uh, we shot it dusk for dawn. But apart from that, you know, I think because the family were, you know, leaving for new grounds and, and the world was expanding, you know, as the, the family kind of moved away from the farmhouse, you know, inherently, even though I referenced her work, you know, we're all such individual artists. And then my, my usual instincts just kind of kicked in. I love that. And the film, of course, for those of you that seen it, it's certainly no spoiler. It begins with day one of this attack, this, this moment in history for them, where you kind of reveal when we went from normal life to now this quiet place life. And um, this sequence has gotten so much attention. People are obsessed with it. It's just such an amazing open to a film. And there's so much going on there. Um, I want to isolate one particular moment and one particular effect uh, or stunt rather. It's the bus. And you see this in the trailer that that moment where our main character um, played by Emily Blunt is going up sort of She's looking behind her as they're reversing, and you sort of see this bus coming at them. I thought for sure that was a visual effect until I read that not only is it practical, but I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it was done with one take, or, the, or the, at least the take that you used was the first take. Let's get to the bottom of this scene, because this must have been just such a joy to shoot, and I'd love to hear your breakdown of how this whole thing happened. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll start off in saying that, like, when I first spoke to John about the movie, you know, we we did talk about um, the opening, uh, the prologue of the film. And, um, you know, we talked about um, Quran's work in Children of Men um, and how immersive that scene was in the car um, that they did with, with Clive Owen. And, you know, we used it as a reference for this movie. And I think it's kind of like part of the whole language of the film in that, our intention was to really be with these characters and be subjective with them to the experiences they were having, you know, um, which was a continuation of the first movie that you're really in the world and, and sort of, especially with the sound design and everything, you're kind of like, you're there with them at all times. So mm. we didn't want to do any coverage for so much stuff. We just wanted to shoot things in one take, especially at the beginning um, where this sort of the rhythm of the film is kind of more... Um, dictated by long shots rather than, you know, a lot of coverage and, and a lot of cutting. Um, and so, you know, it just kind of meant that when we found um, Evelyn and the kids in the car um, and the radio was kind of cutting out, we wanted to experience, you know, that moment with her and stay in the car. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, 
we kind of started talking about this and we started saying to the producers what we wanted to do. And they were horrified and said, well, there's no way that you're going to put two, two minors and Emily Blunt in a car with a stunt bus careering towards her down a hill and, you know, other stunt vehicles crashing around in front of them and people running around and, you know, special effects explosions. And, you know, there was so much going on, but, um, just like with the decision to shoot on film, we really just, you know, put our heels in the mud and just said, you know, this is this is the way to do it. So we just had to figure it out because although it was referenced by the Children of Men shot, it was different in a couple of ways. Um, you know, I wanted to start close with the radio and I wanted to be able to um, pull back on a straight line. Um, John also wanted the ability to be able to look 360 um, and we needed the camera to boom up and down. Um, and, you know, because of the nature of the stunt, also with the Children of Men rig, uh, the director, DP and um, Key Grip were riding on top of the car. Um, but we couldn't do that. So basically we had to find out a brand new way of, of how to create this shot. So we, um, we had a power slider, a remote control slider, with a motion control arm underslung into the car. So we cut the top of the car off. We then got the special effects team to um, remove the front two seats and then put them back as far apart from each other as they could. Um, Noah's headrest uh, was also on a magnet so that at the beginning of the shot, he could lean forward to let the camera come through and then stick his head back and the magnet would click into place. Um, oh wow! And then we had a remote head on the on the motion control arm just to be able to give us flexibility with um, the motion of the actors. So it was very complicated. Um, we were able to rehearse it for a couple of days in a parking lot with the bus, um, and because of the motion control arm, we had to pre-program the um, points on the arm with the position of the um, power slider, and it was all done just with the um, just with a countdown. Um, it was all timed out with the dialogue, with the action. Um, and because we had rehearsed it, you know, for a couple of days and because everyone had figured out the kinks, we did end up doing it two times. Um, and uh, I can't remember now if this was the first or the second take. Uh, it might well have been the first one. But it was it, it, it happened on a day where we were doing really well and we ended up completing all the work. And then everyone was like, OK, well, let's just do the car shot. And I was like, oh my God, we're not ready. And and then we did it and it worked out really well. Wow. So it was not an afterthought, but they just tossed it into a, another day that was just going really fast. Yeah, it was just a few days later on the schedule. And I think we had completed the day's work and um, we had some more light in the sky. So they were like, you know, let's just do the, the car shot. Oh my God. Now you told us that the producers thought you guys were insane. What about the actors? Did they also think this was insane? Did you get any pushback at all? Um, I mean, I'm sure that John and Emily talked about it. Um, <laughs> I'm not really sure what those conversations were. And um, I feel like Noah, who plays Marcus, is such a, um, he's such a, you know, superstar that I'm sure he probably found it quite exciting. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, not that I was aware of. That's amazing. And what a, I think something about that scene that is so terrifying and really about it's kind of the whole the whole movie, but it's this idea of your your security being 
removed. Because I think people feel that a car is like a safe place in a way. Like you feel you're, it's gotta be some like weird primal animal thing where like being in a small little space, you feel protected. It's like, you know, putting a blanket over your head as a kid when you're scared of something. And then to have so many terrifying things happen and have that safety breached, I think is kind of the essence almost of this entire film. They're, they always find themselves in these small spaces and their world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. I mean, you're, you're seeing that in the train scene. You're seeing that in like the, um, in the, that little, I don't even know what that is, the heater or something that they're in. The furnace. The furnace. Like, <laughs> yeah. is there something to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's that idea of, um, you know, because I think there's so many jump scares and there's tension in the film with what's around the corner, you know, and I think that is that thing when um, we first meet Killian Murphy's character where, you know, they're in the big um, expanse of sort of the countryside or the exterior of the steel mill. And, um, you know, what's nerve wracking is... Um, you know, if they make a sound, something will come. But of course, you think that if you can't see anything, that you're safe. Whereas, in fact, uh, there are creatures around the corner or there is somebody watching you. Um, and yeah, I think it's just, you know, there's always a push and pull in this film. And I think it's from, you know, the wide expanses um, and how the tension builds in those. And then also in those more contained environments and how the tension builds in those in a separate way. And then I also think it's, you know, the action of the movie and all the energy. And then on the flip side of that, there's those really small, quiet, intimate scenes where we just really lean into the family drama and the performance. Um, and so, and then also it's the editing of like the long oneers and the sort of like the, the long shots compared to, you know, closer coverage and maybe a few more cuts. So, you know, in prep, John and I really talked about all these different things and like the relationship of of all of them and how they work together. What's it like working with John Krasinski? Uh, John is a power force. Um, I mean, you know, he had such a strong vision for this film and I, I think especially writing this one. Um, he really saw it clearly in his mind and he always pushed us every day to like make it better. Um, and I think I really met my match because you know, which is a hard thing to be in this business because, you know, really? at a certain point you can't make everything perfect because there's just not enough time. Um, and John is, you know, he's the same as I am. It's funny to hear you say that, that being, that it's difficult to be a perfectionist in this industry. Is it just because it's so collaborative and you kind of have to let go of things? No, I mean, not, not the collaboration part of it. Um, it's really just more, you know, when you're like moving the camera or you're lighting a scene. Um, I'm sure most DPs will agree that if you had more time, you could continue to make it better. Mm. Um, and I think especially on this schedule, you know, we had 50 days. We shot a lot of it at night in the summer in upstate New York. So there wasn't a full 12 hour days to do the night work in. Um, you know, we were really limited um, with our time. And I think going back to Something that I found really interesting when I watched the movie um, is that because I was shooting it on film compared to digital, you know, I think with digital, like I see the image on the monitor and I can be really specific about, you know, the, the, the height of the light and the shadows and, you know, the balance of exposure and, and so many things in the frame. But, you know, like I said, with film, you don't really have a clear image on the monitor. You're just doing it with your eye and your light meter. So, you really just let things go. And I think when I watch the film, I'm like, 
oh, that's really interesting that things look a certain way because if I had shot it on digital, I might have tweaked things more than I did with film. Mm. I think that that letting go of extreme perfectionism kind of goes hand in hand with film. Yeah. And it's so it's sort of maybe this is a great maybe this is a great kind of not not necessarily a lesson, but maybe this is a great experience for you to kind of, you know, maybe buff off those edges of like everything has to be perfect. This that's probably like a, like a great experience for all cinematographers. For sure. I mean, you know, like I think my mantra always now at work is there's beauty and imperfection. Um, mm. You know, I, I can't make everything perfect. There's just there is no way to make that happen. Um, so, you know, I've I've made peace with that. And, um, you know, I, I'm proud of of how this movie has turned out. And so, yeah, you're right. It probably is a really good lesson. Yeah. I want to talk about interior and exterior scenes and how you approached both of them. Um, let's start with exterior because something that always fascinates me is how you can create a scary scene in an exterior. I think a lot of people feel like if it's horror, if it's thriller, it has to be dark. It has to be moody. There needs to be shadows and you can't, you need to be, it needs to be mysterious in a way. I feel like you are able to do all of those things in daylight. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and kind of how you made that happen in your lighting and camera and movement choices. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, so much of it does go down to, you know, the language of the camera and also the editing, you know, um, and, you know, sort of the coverage that you choose to get in order to be able to create that jump scare. Um, I mean, the exteriors, you know, they were handled in different ways in the daytime. Um, you know, the one at the steel mill, um, you know, that was such a, um, it was a vast scene, you know, like the action of the um, characters running so quickly um, once she um, trips the wire with her foot, you know, and the, and the bottles fall. Um, it was such a complicated scene to shoot because um, we had to be able to move with the actors in, in such a quick way. And the ground was so um, unruly um, and it was real, really important for John to be able to be like wide and close with them. Um, which is which is complicated to do in the ground like that. So we had to fly massive um, cranes with overhead fly swatters um, diffusion um, up above them in order to recreate the um, the natural shade of of the structure of the steel mill that came across at a certain part of the day. Mm. Um, and the steel mill itself was um, full of coal and asbestos. So it was a very wow. limiting um, limiting environment. But, um, you know, it's just all about like moving the camera, um, staying wide and close with them, um, often trying to, you know, create the source of danger in the same frame or in the same shot with those who were in danger. So it wasn't just like a cutaway or an insert or anything like that to, you know, what was the source of danger. It was more just like very long um, shots that would kind of like include those two things in the same um, shot. So, um, you know, it wasn't, we weren't necessarily at times basing things on editing because um, we wanted to not let the viewer escape from the creature just like the characters couldn't. Um, so, you know, that was a, a particular scene. And then when uh, Regan was walking to the um, the train carriage through the train station, 
you know, that was just chosen to sort of be tracking with her slowly and, and sort of discover the world with her as the foreground um, remnants of the people that had, you know, been attacked on the on the train platform and, you know, stay behind her in the train carriage. And, you know, you get the jump scare with the birds in the train. Um, so, you know, everything was really just trying to stay with these characters. And, you know, when something jumped out at them, you know, we would jump out of our seats also. I love that. And yeah, I think I think another thing that you were able to do is you were saying just a moment ago, having the threat and the, you know, I guess the the hero and the threat in the same shot so that you're always kind of in their environment. But you had this really weird situation in this film where the threat was kind of everywhere all the time. There was never a moment of peace. Like these people just never got a break. It was constant, constant looker over your shoulder. You can't even make a noise. And you were able to really create this feeling of fear at all times. It was unrelenting. Um, and when I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, why do I feel nervous all the time? And I think part of what you were doing was you sort of created these large, vast environments where our characters felt small and unprotected in a lot of places. And I don't know if I was just reading too far into it, but was there something to that in your exteriors of making it feel big so that they feel small? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we kind of talked about, um, you know, like modern Westerns as a reference. Mm. Um, you know, these these large landscapes um, with the characters being really small within them. And again, it's that kind of contrast of like making them small in these big spaces, just like you're saying, you know, and then being with them. And I think even in the interior, um, steel mill um you know it was in that vast location where it was such a gorgeous space that um jess concha the production design designer found um and you know no matter the size of it or all the different things that um you know they could hide behind the creature was just always going to find them were you i guess what westerns were you guys watching was that part of your reference palette for the film yeah, I mean, I think it was, um, you know, No Country for Old Men. Mm, um, yeah, I mean, again, like Children of Men, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not sort of um, tonally at all, but for me, lighting-wise, um, True Grit, um, mm. just because of the, the natural light sources that they had in that film of the firelight and the moonlight. Um, you know, this being a world where electricity, even though... You know, John and I talked about this, like the power plant is still on. So there are moments where maybe um, electricity is still burning. But for the most part, the bulbs have burnt out or, you know, there's no one to replace them. So it really was um, a movie that I was able to lean into a lot of naturalism with my lighting. I love that. Let's talk about interiors and, and nights. You know, there's quite a bit of night work, like you had mentioned, certainly the marina scene. Um but and I and I do want to get to that. But before that, I do want to talk about this furnace that is kind of this small encapsulated space underneath the um, the big. Uh, what were you calling it? I keep wanting to say it a mill. A mill. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So it's this small encapsulated place under the steel mill. Well, where it feels safe for a minute, but you know, I mean, obviously it's not going to be safe for very long. <laughs> that's kind of the whole premise. These people just can't be anywhere that's safe. Um, <laughs> so talk to me about the way you filmed that little environment in the basement of the um, steel mill, and particularly the furnace, because that looks like really tight quarters. And just the logistics of getting the, the camera in there, 
I'm curious about. Yeah. So, you know, obviously when reading the script, um, you know, the furnace was described as somewhere that um, the characters were sort of like bent over in, you know, it was a really small claustrophobic space that, you know, once the door was closed, you know, they had to set a timer because there's only so much air in there for them to breathe before they have to open the door. And, um, you know, when Jess started building these sets or he was giving us sort of like ideas of what they would look like, you know, John and I kept saying, oh, it's too big. It's too big. You know, like, they, you know, it was too wide and, and too tall. Um, but obviously, the smaller we made it, the more tricky it was to shoot. Um, but it was one of those things that it had to feel small, you know, because otherwise it just wouldn't work for the story. Um, so Jess did build, like, there was rivets on the inside, like little ribs. Um, and he, he, he gave me like wild um, panels within those that um, it was his sort of assumption that maybe we would like take panels out and light through them. Um, mm. But it just so happened that um, the camera when we were in the furnace was always on a jib arm with a remote head. It was on the aero jib with a, a Moses head. And, you know, we would basically wheel the furnace away from the set and we would either shoot from the back of it, we would take off the back and shoot towards the front, or we would take off the front and shoot towards the back. But we would always have it, um, you know, shot with this arm that would push and pull from either the front or the back. And so because we were shooting anamorphic and because we were shooting wide lenses close up, any panel that I could have pulled in order to push light through would have been in the, would have been in the shot. So... Mm. It was definitely, you know, it's funny when you think about the marina because that was such a massive um, lighting setup to to do at night. But my most challenging lighting setups was definitely in the furnace because um, it was just impossible to hide any lights there with the camera seeing it all. Um, and so what we did is we just used little light gear uh, ribbon, which we made into various size uh, squares and we would um, put little sort of diffusion, um, like fluffy, I called it snow beard. I'm not exactly what it's called, but we would put um, some diffusion on it and then we would hide it behind the baby's box or we would hide it behind the radio or we would, if we could, we would like Velcro it behind a rib in the furnace. So yeah. um, it was very particularly particular and saucy so that it just was able to illuminate the actors' faces um, at a specific point. Um, but it was very, very fiddly and uh, nerve wracking again, just because it was film. Um, and I just wanted to make sure that there was enough exposure in there to see the environment, but it not feel overlit. So was that, those lights were your key lights in there? They Is were. That all you mm -hmm. really? Wow. Even, yeah. So even in close-ups, when you have maybe a little bit of room, you were just using those? Yeah, because maybe not in the editing, but um, while we were shooting it, you know, the camera was usually pushing in from a wider shot to a close-up. Um, wow. So I wasn't able, um, and that's actually pretty much how the whole film was. Um, we didn't necessarily do big wides and then, you know, move in, in a traditional sense. Um, the camera, you know, like I said, because we were trying to contain everything in the same shot, we would often start wide and moving quite close. Um, so I had to figure out a way to light it that, um, you know, no lights were going to be in the shot. And um, I also had to figure out a way that we could move very quickly. And so when we turned around, like to the opposite direction, that I could get on the walkie and I would have lights rigged and the 
um, dimmer board op could just, you know, take the lights up and down. Um, and then we would turn around and we would do our adjustments and then we would be ready to shoot quite quickly. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and talk about MZ Education for Creatives. Now, on MZ, you will be faced with hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based filmmaking education covering all sorts of things, directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. You can find all of it at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. Um, now, there's a, just a, a whole list of really interesting topics, but topics are one thing. It's about the teachers. It's about the trainers. That is what's going to be that perfect synergy between content and teaching. And on MZ, you have people training you that are really, they're, they're working in the industry at a high level. Um, Tom Cross, for example, he's one of the trainers for the course, The Art and Technique of Film Editing. Now, Tom edited La La Land and Whiplash. So, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. In addition, you've got Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom. It goes on and on and on. And that's really what I love most about MZ. High quality education and great looking videos, that's for sure, taught by people that really know their stuff. Now, when you go to MZ, you can get 20% off by typing in GCS20 at checkout. So right there at the checkout code. Um, and you can get to it at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. Yes, you can buy individual courses, and that's a great way to learn. But what I suggest is you turn it into the Netflix model. You become an MZ Pro member because then you have access to everything. And you can learn all the things you're interested in and brush up on maybe things that you don't do all the time but can help you. Like, I edit a lot, but I'm certainly not a colorist. But I'm going to dabble in a few color courses because why not? It'll help me hone my craft. And I know you can do the same over there at MZ. So check it out for yourself. GoCreativeShow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, M-Z, Education for Creatives. Let's spend a couple of minutes on the marina scene. You had mentioned that it was a real logistical challenge to get that lit. And um, and I'm just curious kind of how you did it. Because in this in this film, we are introduced to a lot more people. Like th there's, there's other characters. And you don't know if you should trust them or not. Like it, it, you still have the same level of fear towards human beings as you do towards the monsters in a way. Because you haven't seen a human being in a year. So... There's still an element of fear, no matter what, and um, and that marina scene certainly is a you know it's a representation of that. So let's talk about it. Yeah, so um, the marina sequence is actually one sequence in the movie that we shot on digital um, hmm. because we were you know in a large body of water at night, um, you know, and once you lose the light, you can't see the horizon. The water in the background gets very dark. Um, and so I really wanted to lean into the sensitivity of, of um, digital and, um, you know, embrace their, um, you know, one of their sort of key um, points of, of being able to, to see more into the shadows. So we shot that on um, the Alexa Mini. Um, and we had, you know, we had many different barges out sort of surrounding the marina, um, both with cameras and lights on them. Um, I mean, we basically ringed the whole marina with lights, whether they were on lifts on barges or in the deep background to one side and then up on the hills and just all around. So again, um, as we kind of conceived each different shot, I would be able to, you know, get on the walkie and bring lights up and, and take other ones out um, just so we could move as quickly as possible. 
Um, and the lights were often quite far away. So, you know, the sensitivity of the chip for the Alexa really just, just came in handy. Um, so, yeah, you know, we were just, uh, we were dealing with, you know, as you said, introduction of, of new characters, but we were different dealing with um, a lot of stunts as um, the creature attacks, you know, everyone was sort of flying off the dog and, um, you know, the lanterns kind of like crashed onto the dock. So we were de dealing with um, a fire as well and water work with, um, you know, sort of a telescoping crane that would cover the action, but then also boom down into the water with Killian as, as he um, falls back into the water. Um, and then, of course, the boat work at the end as the creature tries to get on the boat and tries to swim behind him. And also, um, you know, the characters, uh, uh, Regan, you know, ends up getting into a boat and then sort of saving Killian's character um, by dragging him on board. So, you know, it was a lot. And, and like I said, we had very limited daylight hours. You know, I don't think it got dark till past nine o'clock. Um, and then the sun, sun started rising at 5 a.m. Um, so, you know, we just had a lot to do in a limited time. Um, and so really it was just sort of like a dance of cameras on boats and lights on boats and, you know, all the stuff that you need to pull a sequence like that off. Is underwater work fun for you? Seems like it'd be a blast. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I've, I've kind of, you know, since sort of starting out, you know, shooting short films, um, I've always kind of done underwater work and, um, you know, I love it. I mean, I, I love diving. So um, there's nothing, I'm, not, I'm in my happy place when I'm under the water. Um, this time we, we used a crane um, to go underneath the water. And um, we actually had to pick up some of that work with um, Pete Romano from Hydroflex, who fantastically was in New York. And I kind of called him and I said, oh, we had done this marina sequence and the visibility of the water was really murky the night that we did it. And we wanted to reshoot some stuff. And he came in and, and did some work with Killian in a pool, um, which we blacked out and lit um, to match the marina. And I was re very grateful that he was available to help me with that. That's awesome. Where do you go diving? Um, I mean, all around, all around the place. Um, been to sort of Thailand, to Hawaii, to um, Belize. Um, to... I'm like fascinated with that, but I'm way too scared. I, I can't even, first of all, I can't swim. So it's just not for me. And also I just kind of, I don't know. I like the... Even snorkeling, I get like all, I can't breathe. I get all like claustrophobic feeling. Even when I'm three inches under the water, it drives me crazy. You know what? Snorkeling, I always hated snorkeling because I would always get water in my snorkel and then I would yes. start coughing. But with diving, you don't have that because you're just breathing air. And it is the most peaceful place on the planet, you know, to be underwater. Like you haven't got your phone. No one's going to call you. No one can talk to you. You're just there. And it's, you know, it's stunningly beautiful. So, uh, if you ever can, I, I would thoroughly recommend it. I go to Curacao a lot. And like, that's a big thing there. Diving at Curacao and Bonaire, even Aruba a little bit, but mostly Bonaire and Curacao. But so I always see people like going into the water and they've got their suits on. And I'm like, oh my God, that just looks so cool. That that I that would be such a cool experience. But I'm a little fraidy cat. Maybe one day. We'll see. We'll get there. You'll have to, you'll have to teach me. Yeah, one day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we've got a good question here from Casey Bark, uh, Casey Baker on Instagram about shooting horror interiors. And the question is, do you shape light? Hold on. I want to make sure I'm reading this right. Do you shape light bright and use NDs or light dark? Okay. All right. I see what it is. So they're saying, do you light bright and then use NDs or do you light dark with no NDs when you're doing horror interiors? 
Um, I mean, you know, I think it's really interesting, again, going back to the film uh, nature of it, in that, um, you know, when you shoot digital, you can really be very specific with your lighting choices. For example, you know, for the actors, if you're doing a horror film on digital, you can just light it dark. And I think the mood that you create on set really helps the actors to get into it because it is inherently dark and scary because you're lighting things a little bit... um, on the, on the more moody side. Um, and I think it's the same if you were doing sort of a love scene, um, you know, you could like for digital, you could light it like, um, on the more sort of low end of the scale and, you know, it could feel intimate. Um, but with film, you know, as I said, I was rating it at 400. So if you think a a digital sensor is double that, um, at 800. So we really just had to light things brightly. So, even though it might look very dark on screen, on set, it was probably quite bright. Um, And so that's the thing with the actors is, you know, it was probably bright for them and not scary at all because there was so much light that we needed to expose the negative correctly. Um, But, you know, I tend to always just inherently light things darker. Um, You know, that's just where my aesthetics kind of go. Um, I think it would be really great to be able to light things brightly um, and then ND down or even, you know, in your raw file, have things brighter and then, you know, do a CDL with your DIT or something and and make the the look darker. But then you have a lot more information to play with um, in the Mm. final color pass. Your your feed cut out just a little bit, so you may have answered this, and I apologize if you did, but... Did you speak to the ND part? Were, were I know you were saying you were kind of overexposing for film um, and your natural aesthetic is to do it darker. But in this film, because of that, are you not doing NDs at all? You're just exposing no. brighter. Yeah, no. I mean, I would never do NDs because really what you're doing is you're lighting things brighter, but then you're taking all that light away by putting an ND in. Um, I mean, what I would just say is that, and something I'm actually learning on my current movie or the approach that I'm doing, I'm shooting a digital film at the moment, um, but I'm lighting it brighter, but I'm looking at it um, with a darker look on the monitor um, Mm. so that because I want it to be dark, And sometimes, you know, I might get into the DI and I want to try and get some information out of something and I can't because there's none there. So now what I'm doing is um, I'm setting my monitors to look more like they would in a theatrical space rather than on a a monitor, which is much brighter because it's backlit. Um, So I'm, I'm making it darker so that when I do get into the theatrical space at the end, um, I haven't lost information because I'm getting used to seeing it on a monitor on set. Um, yeah. So what I would just say that um, if you like things to be dark, um, maybe it's a good idea to create a darker look um, and just light it um, with more lights and, and make it brighter. And then um, you have more information and have that thicker negative at the end of the day. Yep, yep. With there's, I just want to blow through like two or three quick questions here. And then I do want to talk about mentorship in our last couple of minutes. So Nathaniel Reyes on Instagram, what is it like working with Emily Blunt? Uh, Emily Blunt is just an absolute joy. Um, I mean, I'm sure you can just imagine that having seen her in so many phenomenal movies, but, um, you know, she's just an absolute sweetheart. Um, And I think, you know, I always like meeting another Brit. Um, So, you know, I would love, I loved her to death and I would love to work with her again. 
Yeah, I, I, she seems like it for sure. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's always nice to know that 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 image out there is true. Um, yeah. Jamie Dickinson, how do you communicate with your intentions? How do you communicate your intentions to your colorist? Um, you know, I think references during the prep process, talking about like the look, the LUT that will be applied on your dailies, um, whether that's on the film scans or on the digital capture, um, you know, tests, um, you know, I think, I think camera tests and also references and, and, um, you know, ideas of color palette and, and all of that just is really important to have in the prep process. And then when I get the dailies, um, sometimes, you know, they might take it in a slightly different direction. So I might get them to retime things that, that aren't quite right. Um, and then I think the, the, the final colorist kind of like, um, has a look at those dailies. And even though we usually go in a slightly different direction, um, sometimes, you know, it just basically sets the tone for the movie. And, and I have to say like my dailies, um, they do look very similar to the, to the end product. And I think that's really important because, you know, everybody, once you've left the project, um, the editor and, and director spend months with the film, the producers see it, they do test screenings with it. So it's really important for me to get it to look as close to how I want it to be at the end while I'm on set. Um, and that's why I do retime daily sometimes, um, just to make sure that my intention is really executed during production. Um, because I think when you try and do things differently in the final pass, not only do you not usually have much time to do that, but then people really, um, you know, they don't appreciate that because they've grown to love the footage that they have. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I want to spend our last couple of minutes and talk about career paths, mentorships, and just kind of how you navigated this industry to get to the point that you are at. And let's begin with this idea of mentorship because you've had some pretty incredible mentors. And I don't think people really even understand what that means. It's one of those things you hear, but then it's like, well, how do I get a mentor? What I don't, I don't even know how to start this process. So can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, I started off my career as a PA and then as a camera assistant. Um, and I think I made it quite clear to all the different uh, DPs that I um, assisted that I wanted to be a cinematographer. I was shooting um, short films and music videos in my spare time. Um, and would constantly be asking them questions of why they're doing things or how they're doing things. Um, And so because I was doing that and because I had access to them, uh, because I was working on set with them, um, you know, they would give me their advice and, um, you know, and I would take it. And um, so, you know, Harris Sambalukas was a DP that I used to assist a lot in the UK. And he was um, an AFI grad and he suggested that I, you know, stop being an assistant and go to film school. Um, And then while I was at film school, I got a job working on Inception um, with Mm. Wally Fister. And so, you know, I was able to ask him lots of questions and learn from him, you know, in between my two years of film school. What were you Um, doing on Inception? What was the job? So I was working as his assistant, which was, um, you know, I basically couldn't afford to go to AFI at all. So I knew that I needed to work in between my first and second year in the summer break. And um, so I got a list of all the movies that were going into production. And, um, you know, I wanted to write and and ask the the DPs if I could, you know, intern for them. Um, Not as a camera assistant, but more as an intern 
because I wanted to be able to not be so busy on set because being a camera assistant is extremely demanding. Um, but I wanted to just, you know, be by their side and learn by watching them light and work with the director. And um, because I had worked, um, Harris Samba Lucas had done second unit on Batman Begins. And because, um, because of that connection and because Wally was an AFI grad also, and I think because I was British and they were going to go and shoot Inception in the UK, um, you know, he you know, he sort of interviewed me and asked me if I wanted to do the job. So that was like a phenomenal learning experience for me, obviously, because it was such an incredible movie, um, but a great um, addition to my learning at AFI that I got to spend um, that time with him. Um, And then also I had gone, before I went to AFI, I had gone and done a couple of um, workshops at the main media workshop. And uh, Michael Goy was um, one of the tutors at that workshop. And I kept in touch with him. And, um, you know, he also was able to watch my work grow over the years. And then at a certain point, he asked me to come and shoot additional photography for him on American Horror Story. So, you know, my situation was unique because I was in the camera department and I could meet DPs. And then also when I um, went out to do workshops, you know, again, if you do a workshop and you have a cinematographer teaching a workshop, then you can also, you know, say to them, I want to be a DP. How do I do this? Can I come and, you know, work for you? Or So I would just say, you know, I think mentorship, mentorship is extremely important. Um, and I do do a mentorship program um, with the ASC. Um, but I think it's really important for, you know, young cinematographers starting out to sort of reach out and get a mentor because I think it's really helpful as you navigate the career path. Yeah, and we've got a question from Catalina uh, Para on Instagram. What are the challenges of being a female DP and advice for aspiring DPs? Uh, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it used to be very challenging to be a female DP just because there were so few. And I think, um, you know, when I graduated from AFI, I think I I just understood and accepted the fact that it was going to be harder for me to get work than my male counterparts. Um, then the Me Too movement happened and then the Black Lives Matter movement happened. And I think these days um, there's a real push in order to make the work environment more diverse. Um, And I think there are more and more opportunities for women. I think the fact that, um, you know, it's a male job is kind of a thing of the past. And I think um, the fact that so many um, female DPs are doing amazing work, um, I think, just goes to show that um, anybody can do it. And I think that, you know, there are less women, but I think, you know, if myself as a female DP can inspire younger women to decide that this might be a good career path for them, I would just say that there's less and less challenges as a woman. I think there's lots of opportunities coming and I think there'll be more and more. So I would say, you know, it's definitely a challenging career for, for many reasons. It's not for the faint of heart, but um, you know, hopefully more and more women realize that they can do it. And, um, you know, soon maybe we'll just have an equal amount of women and men doing it. Yeah, it, that's encouraging to hear that you don't feel like it's as big of a challenge as it was in previous years. That makes me feel good. And I think that that, you know, it's, I'm glad that that's the feeling out there for you. I think that's, that's progress and that's great. Um, yeah. I want to just ask you real quickly about, you know, I know Catalina was asking about advice for aspiring DPs, and I think you've given us tons of advice here and tons of thoughts, certainly on your work and what to do. But is there is there something concrete, 
Like, is there an organization you should join? Uh, is there uh, a certain, you know, school you should consider? Is there something that you, uh, a concrete thing that you can point someone to to say, this might not be like the first step of, an, you know, the greatest career ever, but like, here's a concrete thing you can do to start your career. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's no right or wrong way to get um, into shooting. Um, I think that there's many different film schools. You can either go to film school straight off the bat or you can do what I did and you can, you know, start working as a PA and become an assistant or, you know, you can come through lighting, you can come through camera, you can come from school, you can come from stills. Um, I think that what people need to do is they just need to um, just really go out there and just embrace any opportunity and every opportunity to shoot. Um, I think that the more that you shoot, the better you will become. Um, you learn something new every time you do it. I learn something new every single day. Um, and the more people that you meet and surround yourself with that um, need something shot or want to collaborate with you, you know, they might pass your name on to somebody else and then you'll get a phone call. Um, you know, I worked for free for such a long time and I don't advocate working for free. I think everyone needs to be paid for their time. But, you know, my passion to do this, you know, I was so lucky, like I've wanted to do this for a really long time, you know, since I was a teenager. So all my choices have been made in order to take me to where I am today. But um, I just think if you're going to make it, you know, like I say, it's a roller coaster, this business. So you just have to just go out there and be enthusiastic and just embrace the long hours, um, embrace the craziness um, and just know that at the end of the day, um, you know, it will be worth it. I love that. And a good note to end on, A Quiet Place 2 is in theaters now. And if you haven't seen it, why? I mean, just go and see it. It's so good. You will really enjoy it. The cinematography is fantastic. And it's just a fun return to the theater. This is it. It's time. It's time. Yeah. Um, Polly Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anywhere people can go to learn more about you? Um, I mean, my Instagram is Polly Morgan and I have a website, pollymorgan.net. I will let everybody know that there's a very famous taxidermist from Scotland um, I do not work with dead animals in my spare time. Uh, I have no spare time, um, but there's two of us out there. So, um, you know, if, if you if you search my name and dead animals pop up, it's the wrong one. That's, that's right. <laughs> this Polly Morgan is the cinematographer slash diver, not the taxidermist <laughs> cinematographer. <laughs> Thank you so much. We really appreciate it and enjoy the rest of your Memorial Day weekend. Thanks, Ben. You too. All right, I want to thank Polly Morgan, Director of Photography for A Quiet Place 2. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank all of you. There were so many questions, and I apologize. There's a few people we just couldn't get to. Gavin Hawkster and Sean Mahaney, uh, great questions. Also, Wanderer Films. I, I apologize. It just We just couldn't get it in. She had a very limited amount of time, and we used that and more. So I wanted to be respectful there. And um, But we really appreciate you guys um, you know, communicating with us on Instagram and, and asking your questions. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I also want to thank Connor Crosby from ignitionvisuals.com for um, producing this show and making it all happen. And Dave Siegel over at seagullsound.com for mixing and mastering and making the show sound so good. You can find him at seagullsound.com. And of course, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and your favorite podcast app. 
hit subscribe and you'll never miss an episode. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to learn more about me and the work that I'm doing with BC Media Productions, you can find me at Ben Consoli on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for joining us today and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.